Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Ryan Sprague, and I am here with my UK friends, and this is Somewhere in the Skies. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I am your host, Ryan Sprague, and uh, there has been a lot of chatter. A claimed contactee, a term that we're going to talk about tonight on our show, uh, a claimed contactee in 2021, a woman who goes by the name Anjali. If you are not familiar with this story, it's very interesting. It's uh, controversial, and it's all the rage in the UFO community right now um so i thought what better time to bring on the person in my personal opinion the expert on the contactee movement he is the host of the saucer life podcast one of my favorite shows to listen to so without further ado i'm going to bring him on aaron gullius welcome to somewhere in the skies brother hey ryan how's it going Good, good. Now, I have to admit, I think this is the first time I'm having you on the show. Just you. I You've think so. Been yeah. Featured in the show. Yeah, I've done some audio uh, from your lecture at a uh, at a conference we did together in Nova Scotia. But this is the first time I actually have you on. So yeah. it's an honor and pleasure, man. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's talk about that before we get into your your origin story um, and how you got involved with all this craziness. Um, let's talk about Esotericon 2018. It I know amazing. it was seems amazing. like a million years ago, right? But um, man, and, and you were there and uh, Tim Banal and Greg Bishop and Walter Bosley and Micah Hanks. So it was um, uh, Holly Stevens. And mm-hmm. it was it was just a great, great event that that Paul Kimball put together out there in Halifax. Absolutely. I mean, I I will always cherish those memories of staying up till two, three in the morning, chatting with you guys all about all this UFO stuff, paranormal, everything in between. Paul put on an incredible, incredible event. Are there any other memorable moments you have from that Esotericon that um, you can uh, drum up for us here? I think uh I, I think probably my um my one of my favorites was um just being uh in the Airbnb house we were all in uh re- recording um an episode of Greg Bishop's Radio Mysterioso uh right. podcast that was it was um I'm not sure I don't think it made it into the archives just because there were so many people in the room talking. I, I can't imagine <laughs> too that. much profanity, right? <laughs> it was a lot of profanity. Um, one of those things where it was 
much more if you you had to be there a, a sort of thing so so from a from a listener point of view it might not have been um the greatest experience but <laughs> i uh i loved that some incredible conversations and on, on things ranging from ufos to ghosts to to cryptids to the whole uh the whole weirdness gamut uh was sort of run there so i, I really enjoyed that yeah it was a time i will never forget and my first time meeting you in person what? and um and and the lecture you gave was by far my favorite and we we'll get to the lecture because that's kind of what i want to talk to you about a little later on here in the conversation but um i gotta ask aaron how did you get involved with all this as a kid like like junior high age or so i um I, I watched a lot of In Search Of as a kid, old In Search Of reruns with Leonard Nimoy from back in the 70s. And, and so this was like, you know, the mid 80s. So they were on in the afternoons. Whenever whenever the Cubs game got done early, they'd slap on a, an In Search Of episode on, on Sunday afternoons <laughs> or whatever. So I, I was aware of UFOs and the whole paranormal thing. And then I can't remember the, the exact name of the book, but it was by a guy named Daniel Cohen who wrote books like The World's Most Famous Ghosts and lots of, lots of young reader-oriented UFO and, and paranormal stuff. And I, I just sort of got into it. And then uh, in, in high school, I, um, I think I was a senior in high school when The X-Files premiered. So I remember being like 17 and, and watching that first episode of the X-Files and then go re going to read um, Howard Blum's book Out There, which was mm -hmm. my introduction to the whole MJ-12 nonsense and, and all of that. And so I then I just went off to college in 94 and discovered the internet. And um, once you discover the internet, the, the rest is history <laughs> with, um, with some of these things. And um, got into the, the contactee stuff um, mostly because it was different. It was not greys and abductions. It, uh, it just went from there and then sort of, you know, got involved in, in commenting and conversations on the, the UFO blogosphere in the, the early 2000s and, and 2010s, which is where I, I met Greg Bishop and Paul Kimball and Mac Tonys and, and all of those guys. Um, and then, you know, ended up expanding my, my thesis into uh, my first book, uh, Extraterrestrials in the American Zeitgeist, which sort of narrowed down things to the contactees. And it just sort of went from there. And then in 2017, I started uh, The Saucer Life just because I, I saw room for a UFO podcast that wasn't an interview format, mm -hmm. that was more of a documentary format that was sort of envisioned it as um, sort of like Dan Carlin's hardcore history, but with ufos and not episodes that are eight hours long um and coming out more than once a year so that was sort of the impetus for that and, and now i've sort of expanded beyond that a little bit with a new podcast um with a a co-host uh, my friend uh, samantha engel called great lakes lore where we look at weird history and paranormal stuff f more from the perspective of professional historians looking at these things so um it's been a fairly constant presence in my life for the last almost 30 years, which is wow. troubling, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, there and, and sort of branching out into more political conspiracy culture and, and the more time I spend with all of it, the, the goofier, I think it all is. Um, yep. it, it's yeah. 
It's a gift and a curse. I know it man, is. for sure. It is. It is. <laughs> well, okay. So um, the contactee movement, I want to use that buzzword contactee yeah. for a moment with you. For any of our listeners who may not be familiar with what that is, what it really entails, when it all kind of rose to prominence, I guess, would you mind giving us as a professor kind of your uh, your Cliff Notes version of yeah. what the yeah, contactee sorry. movement is? Yeah, please. Yeah, the, the, the sort of thumbnail sketch of, of, of yep. the contactee movement. So in the 1950s and into the 1960s, one of the sort of strands of flying saucer research that was out there, flying saucer culture that was out there, was um, th this group of people who claimed that they had had some kind of personal contact with extraterrestrial beings. It, it might be physical, like a, an actual physical encounter. It might be a, uh, a channeled experience, sort of psychically channeled. It might be even something sort of kind of like psychic channeling, even automatic writing in some cases. So these contacty experiences have some commonalities. Um, for the most part, almost entirely, the extraterrestrial visitors that we that we see in these cases have um, come from cultures that are that are remarkably Earth-like. They come mostly from planets within our solar system. Venus was very popular, and this is before we knew that Venus was was basically an ammonia atmosphere hellhole, right? <laughs> um, so they're they're human in appearance they're like us they're like earthlings their civilizations were once like earth but they evolved beyond that they evolved beyond things like warfare and destruction and greed and environmental degradation and racial strife and things like this and so they wanted to um, help earth by warning humans of the dangers of especially nuclear warfare and atomic weapons that that there were threats that, that if humanity were to have you know a, a nuclear war a global nuclear war it would not only destroy the earth it would cause cosmic repercussions to all these other planets so the contactee movement contactee experiences tend to have these these similarities and, and, and probably the the biggest one is that in some way there is some kind of message, some kind of social message, political message, economic message, some kind of um, some kind of 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 preaching in mm -hmm. a way, a, a didactic lesson on how humanity, uh, how humanity can uh, can evolve. And these groups are these these people are all from advanced civilizations, but they're civilizations that had once been as bad as us, but overcame that. Humanity on Earth still in the cosmic kindergarten is a phrase that was used a lot, and we have a lot of uh, a lot of growing up to do. The movement faded by the early '60s as um, ufology—that's a sort of anachronistic term at the time—but ufology became more focused on uh, nuts and bolts. Um, let's just catalog sightings of supposed craft, and if we catalog enough sightings we'll learn something i think we're still waiting for you know to hit whatever critical mass that is of sightings mm -hmm. we collect before we know answers um 
things moved more toward there's a CIA Air Force cover up of things. The NICAP organization model of UFO research kind of takes over. We need to approach this with a scientific mind and look at this as a you know very serious sort of aerospace-based threat, the contactees were an embarrassment. It didn't really help that many of their stories were easily debunked, easily dismissed, easily proven to be hoaxes. And they make outrageous claims that they can't really back up. But um, they do persist. Contacteeism does persist through the 60s into the 70s. By the 80s, and, and one of the contactees I'll be discussing in a bit um, is, is largely responsible for one of the ways, uh, one of the reasons this continues. But there are, uh, there are contactees today. As you mentioned, there are contactee elements to, uh, to Anjali's story. There are um, also contactees, or there are also contactee adherents, uh, believers who cling to the original messages that were spread by the, some of those contactees from back in the 1950s and 60s. So it appeared it was a big sort of thing, and then it, it, it kind of faded, but persists sort of as, a, as an undercurrent of, of what's still part of the, the UFO tapestry today. Um, well, I should mention I've got the book right here. Oh. One of my favorites. Um, I believe you signed this one too. Yep, you I, did. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, one of the words in there in the title is American, and I might be getting ahead of myself here, Aaron. But because um, we're going to talk about your top three favorite contactee mm -hmm. stories tonight, but I know there's hundreds. Um, is this primarily something you found in your research that is very? western or even more specific very american it is in its origins um but there are contactee stories that happen in various parts of the world um the episode of the saucer life i'm finishing up right now is about uh, an experience in, uh, in in great britain there's a couple of contactee experiences in great britain um our most recent episode went to uh, went to East Asia with some cases of weird humanoid sightings in Malaysia, and contactee experiences in Japan. There is a um, there are a few prominent uh, one in particular prominent contactee case in in South Africa. What is significant, though, I think, and, and what sort of links this to the American context is that. These contactee experiences in other parts of the world follow the American model and in some cases are, um, especially in, in the case in Japan that I mentioned, are, are explicitly sort of experienced by people or reported and interpreted by people who are devotees of those American contactees. I, I think in, in places like Africa, in South Africa in particular, um, there's, there's sort of two strands of, of, um, and this is a, a huge topic to get into. So I'm just going to sort of narrow it down a little bit. <laughs> there, there's sort of two strands of, of African UFO contacts. There, there's one that is sort of different and, and very sort of, sort of indigenous African in context. And then there's a, especially during the fifties and sixties and, and seventies, and even into the eighties, there's a strand of, of African ufology that is, that is basically what I would term colonialist ufology. Um, it's, it's white people living in Africa in the aftermath of 
the end of colonialism um, sort of being an outpost for European or American ufology, if that makes sense. So in, in some cases, what you have is, is this sort of colonialism in, in the, in the, 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 what had been the colonized world, um, sort of, sort of, sort of mimicking and, or, or, or just remaining true to their own sort of colonialist roots and, and saying, you know, I'm, you know, you can say this is an African UFO case. It's like, well, this is an African UFO case in the sense that it's a white person of British descent living in apartheid era South Africa. That, that, that's not necessarily, you know, putting yourself in a position to say, well, it's very multicultural. This white person's from over here, you know. So <laughs> it, it's you know one of those one of those things where. But then there's other other African UFO stories that are that are you know distinct and different and and, and sort of more fundamentally local to the area and, and to the, um, to, to the indigenous population, if that makes sense. But there, there are, there are global aspects to it, but often the pattern is the one set by, uh, set by the American contactees. Yeah. It seems to always be that way, right? I mean, our influence around the world, our media being the number one import we have or influence around the world, it even stretches into these weird realms of how uh, certain cultures interpret an experience wow. they have. We we actually just spoke about UFOs in Africa um, a couple weeks ago here on the show, and uh, you're you're right. A lot of these stories from the indigenous people uh, are are theirs alone, and it's seen through the lens in which their culture has seen it. And there's you know a reason we don't hear a lot about them because a lot of them are uh, believed to be given. These are our ancestors who are coming right. back to visit us. So why would I report this to a white UFO researcher living in Africa at the time? It wasn't a UFO to me. It wasn't an alien right. to me. It's yeah. a given. And I yeah. find that fascinating. Um, and, how many reports we might have had had that uh, been the case. Right. And it might have might have broadened our perspective if there were people from a different from a different cultural context. Um, not only reporting it, but interpreting it and explaining it and presenting their own viewpoint rather than, um, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill ufologist saying, well, something like this happened in Iowa last week. And it's like, well, it, it, did it? Or did it are really? you just <laughs> taking that from it? Because that's that's your point of view and your your, your perspective. So, um yeah, the the sort of sort of global aspect of of contactee stuff is is something I'm I'm hoping to get into more on the show um, because I, I don't want to say I'm running out of contactees from the <laughs> United States, but um, but but I, I'm running out of interesting ones in some cases. Gotcha. Yeah, my you know everyone always asks me, um, you know, how long are you going to do this podcast for about UFOs? There's only so much you can talk about, and I tell, trust me, there's enough. For ten lifetimes, yeah, we'll find it. There, if it's out there, we'll find it. There really are. There, there are some big topics that I haven't gotten to yet because they're just so big that it's like, oh, that's that's a golf breeze. It's like I, uh, I don't want to do golf. Breeze. I haven't even tackled that yet. Man, man. you're a braver man than I. <laughs> a mess. I don't want to do that. Um, uh, Roswell. I, I will end the show before I do a Roswell episode. I'm, I'm just, I'm just not gonna. Um, spare. Nope. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's an infinite number of topics. There's an infinite number of ways to, uh, to get into these things and to explore them. 
Absolutely. Well, that's, that's a perfect transition. Let's explore. Now, um, again, the reason I had you come on is we're heading towards the new year. Um, countdowns are the big thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people love doing these lists, you know, top yeah. five, top 10. Um, so I had to ask you, you know, with all of the stories you've presented on the saucer life or in your books, um, your top three favorite, if you don't mind, Aaron, wherever yeah. you want to start as much as detail as you want, man, I'm just going to let you go. Okay. Um, and I'll spring in my, my dumb jokes throughout. So um, <laughs> please, man, what is your number three for your uh, favorite contactee story? Okay. Well, instead of ranking them, I'm just going to go in chronological order. Done. If that's okay, because they're all your um, favorites. <laughs> they're they're all they're all favorites, and some are favorites. Some are um, too significant not to talk about. Gotcha. You know, especially if, if there's members of the audience who who want the straight dope on this. You know, there's there's a couple of you know really significant things, and I've got, I've got two really significant ones, and one that is just my out and out favorite for goofiness. Cool. Um, because it's it's just fun, but I think we've got to start with George Adamski. The absolutely, the, I think I got his book right back here, I, or at I, least a cover of his. I've got multiple copies of some of his books because I've clearly got a problem. But <laughs> um, George Adamski was was born in um, born in Europe to to Polish parents, um, migrates to the United States as a child, um, serves in World War One, settles in California. And during the 1920s and 1930s, gets um, involved in, in spiritualist organizations, sort of connected to, uh, to older theosophical societies and movements and things. And he establishes something called the Royal Order of Tibet, which is kind of a, uh, kind of a, a, a mishmash of, um, of different sort of pseudo-Eastern philosophical traditions uh, later it was reported that he, um, he he said to somebody that the only reason he did it was because they used wine in one of their ceremonies and <laughs> it was a way to get around prohibition uh, so it was sort of a bootlegging operation and a spiritual um, a spiritual retreat love it in the 1940s as um, even even before the UFO thing starts to uh, starts to take off, he claimed that in 1946, he and some followers saw a cigar-shaped UFO. He didn't really talk about this before the whole 1947 UFO era kicks off, so it's kind of suspect. But beginning in 47, he starts uh, saying that here, my little telescope at Mount Palomar. So Mount Palomar was an observatory in California. And, mm -hmm. and this is one of the things Adamski did that was sort of clever. He says, from my telescope at Mount Palomar, I've seen these and photographed these things, which gives the impression that he was doing this at the observatory at Mount Palomar. But no, he worked at a hamburger stand down the road from Mount Palomar, sort of <laughs> down the slope and had a, a small telescope there. So yes, it was a telescope. Yes, it was Mount Palomar, but it was not Mount Palomar Observatory. So we all beef up our resumes, right? right? Sometimes. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the ufological way. He was he was a, a pioneer in this uh, sort of sort of resume padding. So he start, yeah, yeah. He starts lecturing. Um, he's got photographs of UFOs. Some are remarkably clear, um, and they all sort of sort of set the pattern for what the generic 
UFO is going to look like. It's a flying saucer. It's got the dome at the top. It's got the little landing balls underneath the sort of skirt thing that uh, that goes around it. Yep, that ab. Yep, there it is. That is the uh, that is the Adamski saucer, right there. So. In 1949, and, and this is this is one of the things I love about him. In 1949, he publishes a book called Pioneers of Space, and it's a science fiction novel about some Earthlings who go around the solar system and meet people from Venus and Mars and Saturn and the Moon. And what I love about it is the Moon people are called the Moonanites, which I just think is just delightful amazing um, yeah yeah and of, of course each of these civilizations he meets are superior to uh to humans on earth but it's presented as fiction and then in 1952 near the end of 1952 he claims that he and some friends were out driving around near desert center california and he has an experience with a landed spacecraft and communicates telepathically and via, you know, mime with the occupant, a, a long-haired, blonde person in a jumpsuit uh, whose name is Orthon. And Orthon explains that he is from Venus and that uh, the Venusians are very worried about humans' um, nuclear weapons testing because it might destroy the universe. And this is published and related in a book called Flying Saucers Have Landed, which was mostly written by a guy named, from Britain named Desmond Leslie. And it was sort of a sort of a, an overview of things that might have been flying saucers throughout human history, sort of a, a proto ancient astronauts, mm. you know, what about Ezekiel's wheel sort of sort of stuff. And could then it be? <laughs> could, could it, yeah, you know, so could, could these have all been UFOs back in the day? And Adamski's story is sort of appended to the end of this, but it takes off like wildfire. All the UFO newsletters are talking about it. Newspapers are talking about it. Wire services are picking it up. Adamski goes on all sorts of speaking tours talking about this. UFO clubs organized to talk about his ideas. It's, it's pretty major. And then later in 1955, he writes a book called Inside the Spaceships, which is mostly about his conversations about you know cosmic philosophy and higher thought and, and the way humans should live in peace and harmony. Um, he goes on several trips with Venusians and Saturnians. He gives them all sort of funny George Lucas style names, Furkan, Ramu, you know, just kind of goofy names. Um, critics have pointed out that uh, a lot of the things that he claims happened to him, in inside the spaceships are basically recycled bits of his pioneers of space science fiction novel from a few years before, but um, he maintains his popularity despite his photos being um, outed as hoaxes and, and things like that. Uh, he he's interesting and, and and one of the one of the things he he does is in his contactee works and in his talks. He puts in a lot of a lot of material about the ways humanity needs to improve. Our economic systems need to be more fair. We need to live in harmony with each other. War should not be a thing. Um, that sort of 
you know, peace and sort of peace and love thing gets him noticed by people uh, because it sounds vaguely like communism at the time. Um, his FBI file makes it clear that a lot of people in flying saucer clubs around the country that heard his talks contacted the FBI wondering if he might be sort of a subversive. And the FBI looked into it and mostly found that he probably wasn't a subversive, but he did spend a little too much time claiming to have contacts in the government that he probably didn't have. And so they kept an eye on him for those reasons. Um, he, he traveled the world lecturing and promoting his books. Um, transitioned from just UFO stuff to more philosophical stuff by the late 50s, early 60s. Has a book, actually more of a booklet called Cosmic Philosophy, where he sets out the science of life that all the aliens kind of adhere to. And people um, took classes and formed study groups all over the world. And some of those lasted a long time. The, uh, the Japanese contactees I mentioned earlier, I found those stories in the English edition of the George Adamski Get Acquainted organization newsletter from the mid-1980s, and that was being published up until the 90s in Japan. So he, he sets out, his significance is he, he creates this pattern that later UFOs are going to, later UFO contactees are going to follow of humans from other planets who are concerned about our development and are offering us a way forward. They're not going to do it for us. It's sort of a Star Trek-y prime directive kind of thing. They can't get involved. They're not going to land on the White House lawn, so don't even ask. You know, they're, but it sets out these patterns. And like I said, there's there's still believers today in um, in that. The George Adamski Foundation is deeply committed to promoting the truth and debunking the debunkers and selling copies of his books. And one thing, just an aside, you, you mentioned my my contact ebook. Uh, hardest part of the book was getting photo permissions from the Adamski Foundation. Um, I had oh, to really? be very clear that no, I'm not debunking him. I'm not ridiculing him. I'm I'm not being snarky. This is a sort of historical examination of this phenomenon. And even then, the the pictures all had to have sort of this caption across them that they put in with their website address and everything, which, which really kind of irked me. It's like, I'll put that in the caption, settle down, just <laughs> give me a clean picture. But um, they're all I, about I'm, branding, man. Come on. They, they are. And I'm, I'm very happy. They, they were, uh, they were generous and cooperative, but uh, yeah, very tenaciously clinging on to, uh, to Adamski's ideas, despite, you know, the rest of, of UFO world having, having moved on. It's so interesting. And you brought up one aspect that kind of reminded me of uh, L. Ron Hubbard. You have this idea of a writer starting out with sort of science fiction, writing these pulp novels and everything. And then gradually it almost becomes a new religion or right. almost a, uh, you know, using aspects of the science fiction and claiming that it's now real. And you saw that with Adamski as well. It's, it's fascinating how much these writers and these uh, individuals kind of work off of each other in terms of yes. what they do. Yeah. And I would, I would be fascinated to know if Adamski and Hubbard had any contact because they're yeah. doing their thing right 
at the same time. I mean, the, the chronological overlap is significant. And the argument I've always made about, about contactees is, um, especially Adamski, more so than all the others, is that the social messages, the political messages, the cultural messages, those things are clear in his writing before UFOs come on the scene. In the 1930s, he's writing essays um, in, in the, the lead up to World War II, sort of condemning the coming violence and condemning this warfare. He's condemning economic inequality. The basic messages that the aliens have for us are messages he's been talking about already. And my my sort of position on, on this is that Adamski saw the UFO thing as a means for promoting his political and social and cultural messages in a way that would appeal to the masses, or at least more of the masses than his Royal Order of Tibet had. And also sort of fly under the radar as not being politically subversive because it's just goofy flying saucer stuff. Right. And a lot of the a lot of the, the FBI documentation sort of bears that out. They're they're concerned about fraud. They're concerned about him misrepresenting himself as a you know advisor to the government on the alien question and, and and things like that. They're concerned about sort of things they can actually prosecute. They're not like, well, this guy's talking about peace, you know lock him up um which is sometimes some authors give that impression that you know they were you know concerned about his message they're like eh, his message is he's, he's a peacenik but flying saucer guy you know not a huge deal later writers don't have that pre-saucer pedigree that adamski does so mm. uh, but he sets this pattern that makes it acceptable to merge these ideas with flying saucerdom if that makes sense Absolutely. Flying saucer to I love that term. Um, well, and you know, it's so innocent in so many ways too, Aaron. I, I think when it comes to uh to someone like him, because then later in in you know, decades later, you start having these cults pop right. up where these sort of messages and uh contactees, as it were, became not only dangerous but uh deadly many right. times as well so I, I i love knowing the fact that with adamski no matter what you think about his philosophy or if any of this is real um his messages were pretty clear maybe this was his way of funneling it out to the public and hey there you go i i, I think i think you know that was a perfect person to start with yeah um in terms of all of that so yeah um unless you have anything else you'd like to add about Adamski. Um, no, yeah, that's the floor good. is we yours, can, man. We can move on to uh, to the second one. Another guy named sure. George. Um, a lot of Georges during this uh, this era. Hmm. In the fifties and sixties, there's they're all named George. In the eighties and nineties, they're all named Bill. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis. We have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you and keep looking up. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, so you, you sort of get these, these names. But George Van Tassel um, oh, is yes. another contactee who, who in many ways follows the Adamski pattern of, of having messages from outer space that uh, that that he is he is conveying but he's a little bit different uh, he claims that in 1952 same year as Adamski um earlier than Adamski which is another sort of contactee thing so Adamski yeah. says I had my contact in 19 November 1952 um every contactee who comes after um says well I didn't say anything about it before but mine happened in the summer of 1952 <laughs> or in 1951 or in 1923 they're always sort of sort of saying well, interesting I didn't say anything but really I was the first one and um, that's you know you've got the whole UFO wave in Washington the same year that's yeah that's kind of weird I I'm sure there's something too yeah, I, I think there there might be something to it. Besides, I mean, I think it's predominantly wanting to establish some kind of precedence. Um, right. I didn't want to talk about it, but it happened to me too, and a month before that guy. So, <laughs> of course, yeah, of course, right. So he receives messages from numerous beings, and these messages are channeled messages, messages rather than um, physical messages. And he does travel in spaceships, but he does so more astrally, more um, uh, in a non-physical way. And the key figure he's receiving messages from is a figure called Ashtar. And that's one of the things that, that is significant about, uh, about George Van Tassel. But Ashtar's message was that, that, that he and a number of other beings that shared names with um, the some some of whom shared names with figures uh, like ascended masters in theosophical and esoteric belief systems. They were all commanding ships. Um, that there was a a galactic organization that was defending Earth against a coming cataclysm. If you believed, if you were if you were part of the Ashtar movement, 
you would be saved. There were there were ships in place in orbit around the planet to to remove the worthy before any disaster hit. It's the flying saucer rapture, right? Mm. So Van Tassel writes some books, some sort of short booklets about this. Um, he claims to have gotten information from the aliens about designing a um, a, a device, a building, um, sort of sort of a hexagonal dome-shaped building called the Integratron that right. will provide strength and enlightenment and, and rejuvenation, and he actually builds it. He owns an airfield out uh, in California uh, near a place called Giant Rock, where there's a giant rock, and he stages um, UFO um, flying saucer conventions there where every major especially contactee figure of the time spoke throughout the 1950s and 1960s. It was a major sort of flying saucer cultural happening every year. So Van Tassel's significance is uh, not just the Integratron, which still stands today. I think you can visit it. Not mm -hmm. just Giant Rock, which was sort of the dawn of UFO conventions in a lot of ways. But I think the biggest piece of significance from Van Tassel and his Ashtar contacts is that because this was a, a channeled message, anybody can kind of claim to be receiving messages from Ashtar. And I mean, what proof is anybody going to ask for? You're, you're not going to um, say, well, where's your photos? Well, here's a photo of me sitting there in a chair in a trance telling you what Ashtar said. Hmm. You know, you, you don't, there's no way to prove or really disprove this. So, even in the later 1950s, you've got other authors coming forward saying, I received revelations from Ashtar as well. And sometimes they would match up with what Van Tassel had written. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, sometimes there were conflicts. In, in the 50s, there was a big split in the Ashtar community over um, not just the messages, but over um, up, be, people being upset that others were um, inappropriately commercializing and profiting from the Ashtar channelings. In, and it, it, would, it would continue into the 1970s and the 1980s. There was a, a woman who called herself Tuella, which channeled a lot of Ashtar stuff in the 1980s. Books like Project World Evacuation and Ashtar, a tribute where everybody, she channels messages from like 15 different other aliens talking about how awesome Ashtar is. It's kind of weird Ashtar fan fiction. I love that. It's it's so strange. And these 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 this fleet is still surrounding our planet as guardians to us. And when Tuella passes away, other people take up the torch. If you go on the internet right now, you will find people channeling Ashtar, channeling Hatan, channeling Katumi, channeling all these beings that sort of first appeared back in the 1950s when George Van Tassel first started this. So again, some some deep significance, not necessarily the goofiest, weirdest uh, flying saucer story out there, but long-lasting significance, just like Adamski, still believers, still people following these things. And what is amazing is that the Ashtar stuff in present day times crosses over with other elements of um, of of paranormal and parapolitical things. I've got a book coming out at the end of the year, I think, about um, 
what's it about? About <laughs> what I call triumphalist conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories with happy endings, where you're, you're not getting hauled. The, the good people in America are not going to get hauled off to the FEMA camp. They're going to be the ones who win. So I look at elements of the UFO disclosure movement, um, particularly the ones that promise that as soon as everything shakes out, we're going to get free energy technology and nobody will ever be hungry again. You know, that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I look at um, Nisara, which was sort of a financial scam. Um, where there's a secret law that Congress passed back in the 90s, but um, they rigged September 11th to prevent the law from being implemented. And this law would wipe out all consumer debt, redo the money supply. Everybody will be rich all the time. All the bad guys will go to jail. And um, before I knew it was going to be such a massive thing, I thought QAnon would be a great sort of another example of this, which forced me to Oh no! Melt my brain <laughs> for a year with that. But what's weird is you've got people channeling Ashtar talking about Nasara, talking about QAnon, talking about these things. Uh, there was a UFO, a massive UFO disclosure. Some figure, popular figures in the UFO disclosure movement sort of dabbling their toe in the QAnon waters, saying, well, these Q drops um, are, you know, U U I ISBN numbers for these UFO books, if you look at them correctly. Um, very strange stuff. Some of the, the big disclosure names were smart enough to stay way away from that. Some weren't. Um, but you know, Ashtar, Ashtar shows up endorsing QAnon, d d depending on which Ashtar channel or you believe. So these things, you know, are, get sort of pigeonholed as, as sort of early Cold War, 1950s, 1960s things, but elements of them persist. Very interesting. And I do want to talk about that repet repetitive nature yeah. of these things with you, Aaron, in a little bit. Um, but... That's so fast. I'm imagining Ashtar like in his mom's basement, like on the computer, being like, oh, yep, any day now. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, yep. Well, one more question for you. If I'm maybe I'm remembering this wrong. Was Ashtar the the one from the famous like news interruption broadcast? Do you remember that? Yeah, that was weird, yeah. man. I, yeah. I remember Ashtar. coming across that. Ashtar breaks into to an I can't remember where it was, but um, breaks into a news broadcast. The war, allowing you to stay negotiations. This is the voice of Kumar, representative of the Ashtar Galactic Kumar, speaking to you. For many years, you have seen us as knights and scholars. We speak to you now, you say this thing as we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. Yeah, it, it, luckily somebody recorded it and it's been digitized and, <laughs> and it's out there, but just, just fascinating stuff. There, there's a band called Ashtar Command, which is sort of the, the name of the fleet. Uh, so so Ashtar has, has penetrated some elements of uh, the fringes of pop culture in a way that... Um, Adamski didn't, but the Adamski flying saucer is such a, a sort of cultural icon. Um, the uh, sort of embarrassing myself here, but I'm a I'm old school Transformers fan, 
And there's a Transformer from the 80s that was a little Adamski-style spaceship. And in Japan, the name they gave it was Adams. That was that character's name. So sort of an Adamski reference there as well. So these things, these things persist longer, uh, longer than we think they do. Yeah. I I always go back to guardians of the galaxy, like clearly inspired by something like a space command that would sort of govern or police the entire universe as it were, which is again, all of these contactees have had no matter what their message was or how they faded into obscurity they all have a lasting place i think in pop culture in many different ways they do um same thing with uh with, with i think the um the green lantern corps uh so yeah. that, that same sort of a, a space police force guard guardians of you know answering to the guardians those little blue guys um <laughs> and and yeah there's there's these elements seeped into seeped into pop culture pop culture fed into the contactee movement. I don't think, I, I think it, we absolutely need to mention um, the day the earth stood still as mm. a sort of, you know, a benevolent humanoid alien comes and has a message of peace for mankind um, that usually gets trotted out as well. This is where the contactees got all this stuff from the timelines don't work for that. Um, but uh, it, it's definitely something that might've been influenced by contactee culture. And um also, it's it was a dangerous time. It was a frightening time. People were worried about nuclear war. People were seeing UFOs. You didn't have to be, you know, completely immersed in contactee teachings to come up with the idea of, hey, what if an alien showed up and you know stopped nuclear war? I mean, that in many ways, I would have been shocked if there hadn't been a movie like that. You know. Yeah regardless of of the contactee influence or not very interesting yeah i have echoes of uh reagan many years later with his famous speech you know if an alien force came bring us all together hopefully hopefully but yeah 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 absolutely well all right well we're on our third one already man we're racing through these i love it what do you got for me this is this is this is the one that you know Listeners, you might have heard of Adamski, you might have heard of George Van Tassel, you might have heard of Ashtar. I can almost guarantee you've not heard of Reinhold Schmidt. Ooh. Reinhold Schmidt um, was a uh, a grain buyer, worked in, worked in agribusiness out in Nebraska. And in 1957, November of 1957, he had uh, or claimed to have an encounter. And this is this is first week in November of 57. So this is right in the middle of the huge wave of sightings that were sort of centered around the Leveland, Texas flap, right? So Reinhold Schmidt is driving along in Nebraska and he comes across a landed flying saucer. And I'm sort of compressing the story a little bit, but he meets the flying saucer people. They're a group of men and women in jumpsuits and things like that. They all speak English. They all speak English with a German accent, which is very strange. Hmm. He um, tries to find somebody to tell the story to, ends up going to the police with it. He is committed to a psychiatric facility for evaluation. Um, And a lot of times that's, you know, sort of, oh my gosh, they took this seriously and we're trying to shut him up. They let him leave on his, he was able to check himself out. So it wasn't like a sort of criminal psychiatric hold sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But he keeps telling the story, writes a pamphlet about it, goes on some, some lecture tours. And then what is fascinating to me about this is, is he, he hooks up with, um, with some other contactees. Um, Daniel Fry is, uh, is one of them. There are some others he hooks up with on these lecture tours. There's some great newspaper articles from the late fifties and early sixties where my favorite one is he, uh, he's going to lecture at a high school for like a high school assembly, which is educationally <laughs> negligent on the part of the high school. Oh, man. I would have killed to see that in my gymnasium. Are you kidding all, me? All we got was don't do drugs, don't drink and drive, and, you know, be positive. Th- th- those were like the assemblies we had. It's yeah. no fun. <laughs> join the Navy. You know, it was, it was yeah. another, another big one. Join, but, not um, join the Galactic Federation. Right. I, that would have been very cool. So he, he's telling about how he's been on, on subsequent trips with the uh, with the space people. And um, they took him to Egypt, and he was able to read some ancient scrolls in one of the pyramids that, um, you know, and, and the high school, this is all reported in the paper, high school student asked, well, how were you able to read it? And he's like, it was in English. And the students are like, but why would it be in English? <laughs> and then the students just start peppering him with these questions and knocking holes in his story. It's it's hilarious. Skeptical high school, right? It, it was just, I mean, his stories were so goofy that, <laughs> you know, the basic astronomy was wrong. And, you know, he was getting wrong stuff that these students learned in their science classes. <laughs> so <laughs> they called him out on it. And then he hooks up with a movie director who had been interested in, in, in um, UFO stuff, a guy named Ron Ormond. And Ormond had directed some sort of low-budget movies. Probably the, the most well-known one was uh, The Mesa of Lost Women. But Ormond makes a movie called The Edge of Tomorrow. Don't try to Google it. All you'll get is the Tom Cruise movie. Um, <laughs> but it's called Edge of Tomorrow about Schmidt's contact experience. And Schmidt stars in it as himself. It's nice. crazy. It is, I love it that. Is wild. It's like, imagine Ed Wood, sort of an Ed Wood movie, but... And you're excited because oh wow this is going to be a um, a, a great uh, you know contactee movie, and it's not com- commercially available. I was able to watch a copy with the promise I'd never share it with anybody else because the rights are apparently owned by a mining company somewhere. It's very strange, hmm. but um, but the problem is with this movie is that most of it is just Schmidt sitting with an interviewer who's asking him questions. And it, it's like the the worst example of telling, not showing in a film. Yeah, screenwriting ever. 101. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's I want more on the spaceship set and the very, very 1961 looking looking spaceship crew. It <laughs> goes out into theaters. It, it has a, a Hollywood premiere that is not very well attended. Mood is kind of low at the Hollywood premiere because um, during it, Schmidt is actually out on bail, having been indicted for fraud. He is an actual saucer felon. He is a flying saucer felon, a, a flying saucer fraudster. And uh, he had a, a previous criminal record of, of, of petty theft and, and ripping people off. But what he did was he started talking in his lectures about how the, the aliens had shown him various places on Earth where 
valuable crystals could be mined in order to heal various diseases. And he was hitting up mostly elderly women to invest and buy shares in his mining company, which did not exist. So after, you know, investing lots of money, this little old lady goes to the, I think she goes to her bank and the bank's like, <laughs> we're calling the FBI. And so Schmidt is, uh, is arrested. He's put on trial. The newspaper accounts of that this was in the early '60s. The newspaper accounts of the trial are um, are hilarious. Schmidt must have gotten the worst lawyer money could buy because, as part of their defense, they showed the jury the movie Edge of Tomorrow. Oh my god! As part of the defense. <laughs> Also part of the defense. That's a first. Wow. It's, it's insane. And also as part of the defense, the um, the defense attorney cross-examines the little old lady who is the victim of all the or alleged victim at the time, alleged victim of all this, and brings her to tears in front of the jury. Oh. Just what kind of defense attorney? It's like, okay, this very, very sympathetic person we're going to look like absolute monsters. And I <laughs> we're going to dig into it. Between that and my flying saucer movie, I think we've got this case sewn up. <laughs> it, it's, it's like, actually, it's like what I wish Law & Order would be. You yeah. know, they're season 24. Do something like this with Law & Order. This, this would be outstanding. But um, get the SVU folks involved on a alien probing case. That would <laughs> Dick be, Wolf, if you're listening. If you're listening. We got something for you. We, we you call our people we, we've got yeah, ideas check out the saucer life please that's right me. that's right i um i'm willing to work a deal so schmidt is uh is convicted of uh fraud and and selling securities without a license and, and selling securities that don't exist which i think is a separate crime he uh goes to prison for four or five years something like that um he dies um in the early 1970s he, he never tries to make a flying saucer comeback or anything. And I'm not sure there's any wider significance to this story other than um, the the degree to which when, you know, debunkers and, and sort of hardcore, sort of no fun style of skeptics talk about UFO people being frauds and, and there, there ought to be laws and this is criminal. It's like, look, there's no, it's not fraud if you sell somebody a book and some of the stuff in the book isn't true. You paid right. 10 bucks for a book. You got a book, you know, it might not be true. There were real crimes out there that were committed. Um, Schmidt is one example. There are there are some others. Um, some of these crimes are UFO related like this. Some of this, the crimes are like, these are sleazy people who were involved in the UFO thing. Um, I think sometimes we can go overboard on accusing people who might be making up a flying saucer story with somebody who's an actual criminal who's done legally actionable harm. So I, I've just always loved uh, the Schmidt story. It's just got so much kind of fun, goofy stuff. It's not fun if you're the little lady who got ripped off. But um, other than that, yeah, it's, it's just one of my favorites. So those three, two sort of serious long-term um, significance to the history of, of ufology. 
Love it. I, those were perfect. I, I couldn't be happier with your choices. Um, well, I mean, you do see, you start to see, like you mentioned earlier, these patterns, like even these three stories have a lot in common um, in many different ways. And this was what your lecture was about at yeah. the Esotericon. Again, my favorite part of the conference. And um, it kind of blew me away because I never had really sat down and thought about that, Aaron, of how we see these narratives sort of recycling themselves throughout yeah. the decades. And we are seeing trace elements of that happening again today with stories like Anjali. And there right. have been other contactees um, in the past few years. A lot of them have been outed as clear frauds. Others are still preaching their messages and still have right. large followings, giving them swaths of money and whatnot for transcendence and whatnot. Right. Um, that's an episode in itself. But um, <laughs> I'd love to ask you about that lecture. What really inspired you to do that? And what were some of those specific patterns that you really nailed down in terms of uh, these narratives, I guess? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think what, what sort of inspired it for me was was just I'm trying to remember at the time that was 2018 that there was something that was that was happening that was um, particularly inspiring oh, to me. Gosh, yeah, um, I'm wondering too. I can't think of anything. I, I, I think um, were people talking about meta materials at that point? I, I think it, there might have been the first hints of we've got some meta materials that are yes, being analyzed. And, I believe and, you're right, know, which sort of made me flash back to arts parts. Back in yep. the '90s, that you know, somebody had sent Art Bell and, and, and to earlier sort of Roswell-related things, and all the way back to to some stories in in the 1950s, um, crash retrievals, UFO crash retrievals. Um, so many in such a confined space during the same years that we get them confused with each other sometimes, um, and a lot of them being traced back to Frank's Frank Scully's sort of debunked and fraudulent stories, but. Um, in the talk itself, uh, some of the things I, I, I talked about are, uh, I think one of the biggest things I talked about uh, sort of as an example is this recurring sort of story beat of Eisenhower having a meeting with the aliens at um, fill in the name of the Air Force Base because it changed <laughs> right. its name a couple times back in 1954. And yeah. it, this sort of being traced to a letter that was written to a guy named Gerald Light, who was involved in an organization called the um, Borderland Science Research Associates, which had a weird sort of mystical interpretation of UFOs and, and predated UFOs by a few years as an organization. But this Eisenhower meeting the alien story will get worked and reworked and reworked into conspiratorial UFO stories going forward it's just a constant theme it's it's still out there and there are there are variations on it and there are um you know sometimes the year is given as different sometimes there's talk of a treaty that comes out of it either the treaty of grenada or the treaty of grayada which isn't a word and i think <laughs> sometimes what you have is this story is it's like a game of telephone right um only with people mishearing things and then writing them down. So treaty, somebody says treaty of Granada. Somebody hears that on a, on a garbled 
audio clip of Phil Schneider talking about his days working in an underground base and they hear Greata. So on their, their website, they're at the Treaty of Greata was blah, blah, blah. And that's not a word. Um, <laughs> so these things just keep just keep going and, and, and getting recycled and um, just getting woven into whatever new narrative is out there. The contactee stuff, like I've, I've mentioned, gets talked about and, um, and, and remodeled. And I think if you look back in the 1990s, some of Stephen Greer's very early disclosure project stuff and CSETI stuff with his, you know, promise of, um, you know, new energy sources and new technology that will happen, you know, there's, there's a happy ending down the road. The aliens are more advanced and they want this for us. Even more so, there is um, a guy named Richard Boylan, who I think is still out there, um, who who talks about the Galactic Federation and alien fleets. And these people have names. And he says that he's one of their diplomats now, serving as a liaison between Earth and the aliens. And, and this is nothing but but warmed over contacteeism with about 50% of the fun sort of um, <laughs> subtracted from it. So these things do happen over and over and over again. Yeah, it's amazing. And like I said, it just, it really puts things into perspective when you look at everything happening today. And uh, that actually leads into, I've got two listener questions, Aaron, okay. if you're willing to stick around sure. for those. Thank you. And we're also, uh, Aaron is going to be sharing one more contactee story with our Patreon subscribers. So be sure to head on over to patreon.com slash somewhere skies. And you can check out that little bonus gem he's going to give to us. That's my shameless plug. Uh, <laughs> moving on to our first listener question, Aaron. Uh, this comes from Dennis. He wants to know, um, because you focus so much on contactees and sort of the influence they've had on pop culture and vice versa and culture, culture in general, um, what do you personally make of all the stuff going on today? We have the military UFOs, the Pentagon getting involved. Like you mentioned, we're kind of living in a very nuts and bolts ufology yeah. right now with the government. Um, where do contactees lay in all of this? That seems to be a big question right now. Of when will it be their time to get involved with this huge conversation happening right now? What do you make of all of it? I, I don't think that I, I don't I don't think the contactees need a time. I think it's always contactee time for the contactees and for those who are um susceptible to their message, open to their message, because the, the contactee movement, contactee ideas, unlike the nuts and bolts stuff, unlike the military connection, unlike the what is the government hiding and who knows what, and and we need congressional investigations and things like that. Unlike those things, the contactees um rely on faith and uh don't need um don't need proof um the the proof is is in the the obvious truth of the message of the space brothers does it not resonate with your soul ryan that we should live at peace with each other um universal and man yeah if i was being very cynical i would say that the nuts and bolts stuff relies a lot on faith as well um faith that People are telling the truth when they said they had these encounters. Faith that the videos are sourced from where they actually say they're sourced. Faith that this isn't some sort of gigantic op being run for whatever reason we can't understand and might not understand yet. Um, faith that people had the jobs they say they had. You know, there's a lot of faith involved in the nuts and bolts side as well. But I, I think one of the reasons that the contactees have persisted is because 
um, it's always their time. The, the message is timeless. It can be tailored for particular contexts, but it's not as tied to the news cycle, and it doesn't rely on the acceptance and attention of mainstream media and politicians and scientists getting on board. Um, I think sort of traditional nuts and bolts ufology has this sort of inferiority complex and desire to be accepted and embraced by um, by regular scientists who aren't scientists with a UFO predilection. Right. Contactees don't need that. They've got all they need because Orthon told me, or Orthon told Adamski, or Ashtar channeled this message. Um, it's, it, it's, it's very much similar to the divide between science and spirituality, I think, in a lot of ways. There are... Um, there's no level of scientific proof that could validate or invalidate an individual's personal experience. So, um, and the personal experience aspect is so at the heart of the contactee way of doing things or, or way of thinking about things that sort of rationality doesn't really enter into it. it it's almost, it's very much a, a separate sphere. And I, I think it will simultaneously always be the contactees time but never be the contactees time mm, that, i love that yeah it's uh it's contactee o'clock somewhere all the time it, I it love is that. it really is <laughs> well that bleeds into our our last listener question here uh lisa on reddit asks um have you ever personally met one of the contactees that you've covered in any of your work and also um kind of play playing off of that she also wants to know what is your gut feeling to these stories? Do you personally think these could be genuine experiences with some of these people or where does your, your personal opinion lay in all of this? So yeah, two tiered question. Okay. I guess <laughs> I've not met any of the, uh, of the original contactees. I've corresponded with some figures who are, involved in the organizations that um, that still exist, like the Adamski Foundation, um, George King's Ethereus Society, which is the closest thing to a successful, benign, sort of benevolent UFO religion that has ever been created. Um, mm -hmm. Wonderfully nice people in the Ethereus Society. So I, I've spoken to them. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're extremely nice and polite. They're they're, they're sweethearts. Um, yeah. There's there's a branch down the road from me in suburban Detroit that I need to <laughs> uh, I need to check out sometime and and, and talk to them. Uh, so I, I I came a little bit late, um, sort of chronologically, to to talk to any of the uh, of the classic folks, which I which I kind of regret. Um, as for the uh, the the other part of the question, sort of my, my gut reaction and my, my feelings on these, I it's it's very much a case by case thing. I think Adamski had um, had a, a a sort of philosophical cultural agenda he wanted to carry out, and uh, flying saucers were the key to that. Um, I don't doubt his sincerity about his beliefs. I. Um, I somewhat doubt his um, sort of a, a supernatural experience. Um, probably the, the ones that resonate with me the most as being sort of like something happened here. Um, you can check out our, our episode on him, but uh, Orfeo Angelucci was a contactee who had some very, very strange experiences that had psychedelic overtones and 
and, and there, there's just enough strangeness to it that I believe something happened to him, whether it was alien or whether it was um, some sort of terrestrial, I don't know, sometimes a default to mind control experimentation playing a role in some of these things. But Orfeo Angelucci is, is one of those cases where I believe um, something probably happened to this person. I think in other cases, um, there are people who might have had a genuine um, paranormal encounter, whether it was a, a, a spiritual encounter, a spiritual awakening, uh, whether it was possibly extraterrestrial, and their brain filtered things to be understandable in a way that they could comprehend and communicate. And these contactee stories are, are what came out. So I think very much on a case by case basis, I, I don't, I would never put myself in the camp of all contactees were liars and frauds. Um, I would put myself in the camp of you had a little bit of everything, including people who may have had, may have had actual, um, actual experiences. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to deny that uh that possibility yeah i i think that's a perfect place to be like i always tell people i was not in the shoes when this happened right. to this person so um you know leave judgment at the door see how it plays out and um you know let them live their truth as long as it's not hurting anyone else or hopefully themselves uh you know it's a crazy world and crazier things have happened other than you know venusians coming down and right telling us to clean up our acts. So well, thank Absolutely. you. No problem. Thanks Aaron for um, answering those listener questions and for your top three. Um, we're going to head on over to Patreon right now. You've been so gracious with your time. Um, again, head on over. We're going to do a little bonus wrap up with Aaron to tell another one of his, his favorite uh, stories with the contactees. But of course, before we go, man, where can we find everything you're up to, your past books, your upcoming books, The Saucer Life? Give us all of it, please. Okay. So um, two main places to go. You can go to saucerlife.com for all things related to The Saucer Life and um, links to my books and uh, and all of that. Um, or subscribe in, uh, in, in your favorite podcast thingy. Um, Great Lakes Lore is at greatlakeslore.com, and uh, we're on, I think we're six episodes in, and that's been a, a fun project, um, So, and we're, we're, we're getting ready to, to do some Dogman stuff, so Ooh. that's going to be interesting, so saucerlife.com and greatlakeslore.com. Perfect, man. And again, I can't wait till the world officially reopens and we can head to Nova Scotia again yeah, and have exactly. those, uh, you know, midnight conversations over a few beers, man. So again, I got to thank you for coming on Somewhere in the Skies today. Thanks for having me.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com.